0: being in the book of Acts for the last eight months has been challenge after challenge after challenge for our local church to look at its origin story 2,000 years ago and ask the question, why not us and why not here and why not right now? The Holy Spirit did not decide to limit his power when the apostles passed away. Sorry for the sound of my microphone. The Holy Spirit is still moving in power in our day. And our hope and our prayer is that we're not reading a history book of, wow, that was so cool what God did then. Our hope in our prayer is that in real time, in 2023, we are seeing stories of the Holy Spirit moving in miraculous ways. And over the last eight months, that has happened. If you've come to a baptism Sunday, you've seen it happen. We've seen cancer wiped away in front of our eyes in response to our prayers. We've seen marriages restored and husbands and wives get baptized together in front of their kids when they were previously lost as all get out. We've seen the Holy spirit moving. And so when we turn the scriptures to where we're going to look today, we do it with expectation, not just to engage our minds and study the scriptures, but to engage our hearts and believe in a real way, God, you're using this and you're saying something so clearly and we do not want to miss it. Today, we are going to look at the epic story of the apostle Paul standing in front of the elites of ancient Athens, Greece. This is a legendary story if you've never heard of this before. Before we turn there, I want to give you the title and just set the scene for this moment. The title of this sermon is called God's Nearness, Our Zeal. God's Nearness, Our Zeal. Can you look at somebody next to you and just tell them, I'm so glad I get to sit near you. I'm so glad I get to be near you today. Just let them know you're grateful for proximity. Yeah. We are going to talk about the nearness of God. Mark read earlier to start this gathering in Psalm 73 that God's nearness is to us our good. One of the best things that could happen to you on a given day is that you are aware of the tangible presence of God. And what's cool about this title is this is kind of a recap of our first two core convictions as a church. If you rewind the clock all the way to January of 2023, we did a series called ACC Is. And the first two things we said we want to be all about as a church is the presence of God and Jesus-centered zeal. Who said, if anything, we just want to be where God is. He is the goal. He is the prize. He's the treasure. He's the one we want more of. He's what this whole thing is all about. Let's get more of Jesus. And at the same time, we don't just want to draw near to God to feel better about ourselves. We want to draw near to God and be set on fire with a holy conviction to live for what he calls us to live for. And most of all, aim our lives at his glory in the story he is writing on planet earth in our day. And so when you take The tangible presence of God, it is good to be near God with a heart that is set on fire for the glory of God, you get a powerful fusion in an individual's life and you get a powerful fusion in a church because it's not just let's all feel better in a moment and get close to our heavenly father. It's my identity that comes from being a son or a daughter of the living God is flowing and moving in every area and avenue I live in in my life. And so when you read this story today, my hope and my prayer is that you know there is no lie keeping you from being close to God today. In fact, he's a lot closer than you realize. And at the same time, he's not just drawing you near to make you feel better about your weak, he's drawing you near so that you can be sent to the broken and the weak so that you can go out with a spirit of zeal that says, I don't want to settle for a life that is less than the life Jesus died and rose for me to live. Are you ready to study the scriptures? Did you bring your Bible on Sunday morning at Auburn Community Church at all of our locations? If you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up. up in the air, a lot of Bibles missing today. I'm seeing some wincing of like, don't call me out, don't call me out. Whole family's trying to grab onto one Bible together, doesn't count. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we're gonna hit on the third city in a collection of cities that Paul is hitting, starting with Thessalonica. Last week we looked at Berea, and now we get to Athens, Greece. Just out of curiosity, anybody in here been to Athens, Greece at all in life? I vacation there, or anything yet? These are the people who need to be buying you lunch. And um, <laughs> amazing. So, Athens is a, is a famous historical city that had its heyday. A few hundred years before this moment where Paul is going to preach there. What's interesting is, as the Romans took over for the Greeks, so think Alexander the Great takes over most of the known world 2,000 years ago, and then the Romans take over for the Greeks and technologically develop everything that Alexander conquered. But when they got to Athens, the Romans were like, hey, let's just leave this place alone. This place is awesome. Like we don't need to destroy it and make it Roman. We want them to keep doing what they're doing, studying what they're studying, wearing the togas that they're or whatever was going on in Athens. Like they, like they were literally like, life here needs to stay just the way it is. So when Paul is on the run from Thessalonica, he gets to Berea, and then he's got to run further because the Jews from Thessalonica that were mad at him catch up with him at Berea. So he goes hundreds of miles away to Athens, and he's by himself Waiting on his companions to catch up with him. And we're going to read the famous story of Paul in the Aragopagus of Greece. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. If you're there, say I'm there. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. That's how you say that word. I've said it 50 times this week and I messed it up the first time. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's Luke writing this, telling us how he really feels about the lazy Athenians who just like to sit around and talk about ideas. Let's make sure we understand what's happening here. Paul gets to Athens and it says he looks around and he is distressed by all of the idols. Did you know at this point in Athens there were more gods than humans in the city little g gods, statues. In fact, they outnumbered the human beings that were there, three to one. So he's looking around and going, there's a lot of worship going on in this city. And the worship is not dedicated to the one true God who's made himself known in Jesus. The worship is dedicated in tens of thousands of different directions that are false and lies. And so he's distressed. He's he's perplexed. He's provoked. And what does he do? He does what he always does. He finds a synagogue. If there's a synagogue of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who are gathered to worship, Paul is there to be able to articulate the message of Jesus. That's what he did in Thessalonica. That's what he did in Berea. Now here I am in Athens, and I'm here to talk about it. Except when Paul does it in Athens, he runs into some other groups. Epicureans and Stoics. Because there were dominant philosophies in ancient Greece that were spreading like crazy. And what Paul is talking about, a worldview that is based on the glory and supremacy of Jesus, runs completely contrary to what both of these groups thought. Now, a little history lesson. Anybody like love history? This is going to be so fun for you. And if you don't, just try to stick with me through this because I geek out on this stuff. Um, Actually, to tell you the truth, Courtney and I had a trip planned to Greece and Italy a couple years ago. And we didn't get to go because it was scheduled for May of 2020. So, uh, yeah, it kind of stinks. But but the whole conversation was such a tension point because I was like, how do we hit as many museums and tours as we possibly can in two weeks? And she is like, no, no, no coastal and restaurant that's all that's all i'm there for which i'm down for that too but i also want the history and, and i'm just like too bad we couldn't go and then eventually maybe 20 years from now we'll be able to do that once we're out of the crazy season of little kids who are so loud and so awesome and so crazy all the time a little preview into my week anyway anyway the epicureans and the stoics you guys need to know this the epicureans were a group of greek philosophers who believed that everything is random There is no God. There is no divine. Everything that has ever happened to you on planet Earth is the random combination. They wouldn't say molecules. That's pretty much what they were saying. And so the best way you should live your life is to understand that you are alive for a little while. When you die, it is over. And while you are alive, you need to live for the maximum amount of physical pleasure that you can. Live a simple life. Just enjoy it. Eat, drink, and be merry, and then you die. That is one way of looking at life from the Epicurean side. Now, the Stoics completely disagreed with the Epicureans and they would say, no, it's not that everything is random. Actually, everything is God, little g God. So there's nothing in a Stoics mind that ever happens that's outside of some kind of divine activity. The thing about the Stoics is they don't believe that the gods care for humanity at all. They're just up there in another story, and we have no control over what they do. So at the end of the day, what they're doing in some type of heavenly realm impacts us as humans, but we can't speak into that or maneuver that at all. So for a Stoic mind, life is not about living for pleasure. The Stoics believe life is about living for detachment meaning you don't ride too high when things are going well. You don't go too low when things are going bad. You're just kind of stoic. That's where the phrase comes from, where you're like, "Eh, life is life. And I take it for what it is because I don't have any control over it anyway. If it goes well with me, great. If it goes horrible with me, great. But they would say wisdom says just remain even keel somewhere in the middle. So when Paul shows up with a worldview that says, hey, Epicureans, everything is not random. There is one God in control of this story and he's made himself known. And hey, Stoics, life is not found in being detached from your emotions. It's actually found in a real vibrant relationship with the living God everything Paul is saying is clashing with their worldviews and especially when Paul talks about resurrection and so they go okay you come over here to the Areopagus this is the space called Mars Hill In ancient Greece, this is the space where court cases were debated, where the newest ideas from all over the world were brought to the most elite cultural minds at the time. I know I'm a history person and not everybody is, but y'all, can you at least feel the weight of this moment? The Apostle Paul is being invited to the center of the world stage to present Jesus. That's the story you're reading right now. Here we go. Let's Let's let him talk to the ancient world of Greece and share this new philosophy that we don't really understand what in the world is Paul going to say. Verse 22, let's look at it and lean into it. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Stop right there for just one second. What an incredible introduction. Picture Paul in an amphitheater-like environment, similar to this, but a lot bigger. How in the world are you going to get thousands of Greeks who are probably just sitting there? I picture them eating grapes wearing their togas, just hanging out, who's next to share their latest idea. Like all they enjoy doing is trading ideas and philosophies and knowledge. Paul's gotta do something to create common ground, but he's also gotta do something to jar them early and make them go, oh shoot, I need to listen to this. And what he does is he goes, okay, people of Athens, I see that you're very religious. You got gods in this city that outnumber the people. I even found one with the inscription, to an unknown God. So here's what I'm here to do. I'm here to talk about that God. The one you don't even recognize because you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. I've come to tell you the truth that you lack about the divine. Can you imagine the crowd going, oh, this isn't like a few new facts that somebody's got to present. This this guy thinks he's going to turn our entire worldview upside down. You can feel the tension at the very beginning. And Paul is like, here we go. How do you share the gospel to a Greek, at the the time, Western mind? Here it is, verse 24. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Was right there for one second. Paul grabs him. I'm gonna tell you the truth about the God you are ignorant of. And the first thing I want you to know is that there's one, the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't say Lords, he doesn't say group. This isn't a pantheistic mindset. No, there's the Lord of heaven and earth. And the first thing you need to know about God is that God is creator, God is the one who made everything. No one gave him advice on this. No one gave him assistance on this. But the first thing he's gonna establish in their minds is God is the one who had the idea. This is not the random culmination of an explosion that happened. This is a divine designer who took out of his own personal creativity the capacity to go, here is the world as it exists. God is creator, but he doesn't stop there. He says he doesn't live in temples built by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. So not only is God creator, but God is also a sustainer. Meaning God is not sustained or kept up by the creation that he put in place. There is nothing that humanity or physical creation gives to God that he did not have self-sufficient in and of himself. So when we create the false idea that somehow we complete God, we completely miss out on a gospel worldview. God does not need us at all, and he definitely didn't need people to be making images to look like gods. No, he's not built by human hands, and he's not sustained by anything other than himself. He is self-sufficient, and by the way, he's a sustainer of everything that he made. So not only does he usher in creation, he's also sovereignly holding creation, and in that, he is the life giver. God is the one who breathes life into mankind. He is the one who gives us the ability to function and have real relationships with one another. He's the reason why we're even having this conversation in Greece 2,000 years ago. And while we're having this conversation in this moment right now, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God is sovereign. Not only on a grand scale is God creator and sustainer and life giver, but he's not just like this overarching CEO, like I made this, now y'all run it. But he's intimately and intricately involved. He's marking out when and where every single nation will draw their boundaries and when and where every single human being, including you, will live in the story huge, massive power and intimate, intricate detail. And then Paul's going to say, why? Why is God creating? Why is he giving life? Why is he sustaining? Why is he sovereign? And if you've never seen this before, this verse might rock your life. Verse 27 says, God did this. Just circle God did this so, because to understand what was in God's mind When he ushered in this plan of humanity, what what was this all about? Paul is literally saying all of that so that you could know this. God did this so that they, people, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul says, I'm going to tell you why God did all of this. And he actually uses quotes from Greek poets that were written about Zeus. Zeus was like the god of gods in the ancient Greek world. And he goes, you know that your God is not made with human hands. Even some of your own poets have said that we are the offspring of the gods. That, 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 that we're, we're we, in them we live and move and have our being. You know this intellectually, but you're not applying it to the one true God. The one true God actually orchestrated the entire story of humanity because he's pursuing the hearts of his children. If you've never looked deeply into this verse, you need to look up here and don't miss what I'm about to say right now. Paul just established that the reason why human beings live at the exact era they live in, in the exact space that they live in for all of history, is because that is the most likely time that they would reach out to find God and worship him as creator, and know him as father. You know, God picked out the exact moment and space you would live in on planet Earth as the most likely time of all the alternatives that you would reach and find him. Did you know that that was in the Bible? Did you know that that was true for them 2,000 years ago? I mean, think of the weight of this moment. Paul is going, it's not an accident that you're within the sound of my voice. In fact, the God who appointed the boundary lines of the nations is the God who appointed the boundary lines of your story. And his whole purpose in doing all of this is to be close to you. Put those four things back on the screen real quick. This is, this is so huge to understand this. These are massive realities about God. And every single one of these to the Greeks would baffle them. Hey, oh, God, one God created everything. He sustains everything. He doesn't need anything. He's not dependent on anyone. He's the one who gave us life. He's in total control and also intimately evolved. But when Paul lands on the culmination of all four of these things, he gives the most mind blowing fact for them 2,000 years ago. And it's the most mind blowing fact for us right here, right now in 2023. And it's this God is all of this, but more than anything, God is near. He's close, He's not far. He's not waiting for you to make the journey to Him. No, God is that powerful, but He's got a Father's heart and He's drawing near to humanity and making a way for them to share in the reason why they were created because God is powerful. God is committed to His glory, He's in total control. And at the same time, He's a Father who has redeemed His children. God is near. And I want some of you to just be baffled this morning by the reality that all these big things can be true about God and yet at the same time, the most powerful thing that I think could happen for you today is for him to whisper gently by his spirit, your name, I know your story, I appointed your time, I chose you for your family, I am intimately involved in the story and I'm close. And this is where, if you're in the Areopagus 2,000 years ago, you're going, I have never heard anything like this. And this is where, if you're here and you've never said yes to the presence of God, you've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus, this is why we're inviting you into that every week, going, this is the reason why you were made. Jesus comes down from heaven to bring a relationship with God to us and his sacrifice on the cross is more than enough. Trust in him and know him. But I'm not ignorant to stand up here and think that most of you don't know that because 2,000 years ago, they're going, we didn't know any of this. Those five things we just had on the screen, most of y'all know all of that and more. The problem is with our presentation of the gospel, we usually get to the point where we hit on the fact that God is near and then we hit stop instead of comma, pause for a second. Do we talk about Jesus coming close to us in a relationship with God being available to us, but then we call people to pray a prayer and get baptized and go, see, now you have a relationship with God. See, you're good. You got it. But for Paul, this was just the culmination of the story that's leading to the practical outcome, which looks like Worship. Watch what Paul says next. It's not over at God is near. It keeps going. We're going to pick up in verse 29. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, like we just said, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given him proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of of others. Y'all, y'all, please pay attention to what's happening here. Paul says, in light of the fact that God has come near, we should not continue the idolatry that is rampant in your lifestyle and in your city all around you. There are changes that need to be made right here and right now. And what's interesting is Paul's sermon gets cut short before he ever gets to utter the name of Jesus. He's getting there but at resurrection, he gets cut off. Once he hits on resurrection, they go, ah, that, see, that's, that's where we're drawing the line. We're good, we're good. He's, it, it, this doesn't jive with us, we're good. But there are some people in the crowd, Dionysus being one of them, we are talking about him in one second, who are like, This is rocking my world. I'm in. And then there's others who are kind of in the middle crowd who are like, yeah, we'll we'll hear him again, maybe next week. He can go into more detail about it. But he gets cut off and Paul will never again stand in front of the elites of ancient Greece. This is the end of that narrative. But what I want you to see and what I feel so heavy on my spirit to preach to ACC all day today is that God's nearness must be combined with a zeal for reverent, passionate worship. Of his name. Paul gets to the point where he's like, God told this whole story to bring you close, but he doesn't stop the speech there. He goes, So now you have a responsibility to turn with your lifestyle away from what you are currently worshiping and go a step beyond an awareness of God's presence. ACC, look at me. I know this is a complicated historical message, but you got to hear what I'm about to say. Maturing in your faith is getting beyond just a mere awareness of God's presence. It's developing in your spirit also a burden for God's glory. A step beyond, God, I know you're here. I know you love me. I know you're with me. I know you forgive me. I know you chose me. All of that's true. But if we're going to be resilient disciples who go deeper into Jesus, it can't stop with, now I feel forgiven. I can move on with my day. It's got to be, I am burdened in the most holy way for the worship that you are worthy of and the lack of it I see in the world around me right now. See, most of us in this room, and I'm just guessing here, I know you guys pretty well at this point, most of us do believe that God has come near in Jesus. So at every location, I'm assuming, not everybody, there's people who today could be the day you say yes to Jesus and believe in this, and that's awesome, that's game changer, huge. Most of you already believe that. You believe God has come near in Jesus, but less of us are provoked to real action by the idolatry all around us. Most of us would agree God has come near in Jesus. They were ignorant of that. They didn't even know that fact, but very few of us have a real burden on an inner level to go The idolatry that exists in the world around me is breaking my heart and I have to engage and do something about it. So the real question at ACC today is not, do you believe Jesus has come near? I hope you do. But the real question is, does Jesus' nearness change the conviction that you live your life in a world that's lost? Does Jesus' nearness create in you this distress that Paul had at the beginning of the narrative? Are you not okay with how much idolatry is ruling and reigning in our day? And have you become a zealous conduit of the kingdom of God in 2023, carrying a passionate burden for his glory? Because that's why this whole story happened in the first place. Paul didn't show up in Greece and go, oh, I gotta convince them to believe what I believe because they're wrong and I'm right. No, he showed up in Greece and his heart tore. tore. It broke. You probably skipped this because I read it really fast, but go back to verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. That phrase in Greek, greatly distressed, means provoked to action. It means on an inner level, he's sick to his stomach, looking at these statues, looking at these images and going, they outnumber the people here three to one and they don't even know there's a God who's real and a God who made them and a God who loves them and a God who's close. And so I have a burden and a zeal to make sure this word gets to them. And I would argue his zeal was dual. It was a zeal for how much humanity was settling and an even greater zeal for how worthy Jesus is of the worship that he lacks. See, we don't want Jesus glorified in worship because we're Christians who think we're right. We want Jesus glorified and worshiped because he's so worthy. He is so worthy. If you heard just a semblance of the truth I brought 10 minutes ago, that God would come near in Jesus, you would, Okay, how can that be the real story of what happened in this world and humanity and our response be a city full of idols in Athens? And if that is true about Jesus, how can our response be in 2023, lives full of distraction and idolatry? The challenge today, and this is the simple message, is I want you to learn to combine the two. And I think we're trying to do this at ACC. I want us to stay baffled by the presence of God. I want us to get near God. It's awesome. But I don't want it to just create a warm and fuzzy feeling so you feel forgiven. I want the grace of God on a certain level to bother you. We call it being wrecked by grace. So when grace is so awesome, but also you're ruined for living for anything less than the story that really matters. And if you're going to get wrecked, it involves you repenting. See, repentance is very different than just merely accepting forgiveness. It's easy to go, God, thank you. Free gift. Amazing. Repentance is, oh shoot, I'm worshiping other things and I gotta turn. And that's what needs to happen. And this, sorry if shoot is like off the like list of words that are acceptable today. I, I don't know. I don't keep up with these things. I'm just like, sorry. Uh, I think it's fine. Verse 30. Here's what Paul said. He said, in the past, God has overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. See, what Paul was saying to them is that there was a time where you guys didn't know this. In in other letters, he calls it the mystery that was kept hidden, that the Gentiles are being grafted into the people of God. And Jesus has done this. But now that God has revealed that he's near, you got to repent. Here's the thing about our repentance today in 2023. We do know that God has drawn near. We need to repent and live with the responsibility of knowing and live lives worthy of the calling that we've received. And so I just want to create a a couple of seconds for the nearness of God to stir you up a little bit and to bother you. And we're going to take communion and we're going to sing and we're going to watch God move in a powerful way. Y'all still with me this morning? I know, I know we're overcoming a lot today, but we're powering through by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number one, here's what you got to do. Two things. Here's what you got to do. That step of repentance looks like this. M- remember, repenting is I'm going this way, and now I'm going this way. Watch this. Trade living for worldly comfort for a life of holy conviction. Trade living for worldly comfort for a life of holy conviction. I find in my own spirit a temptation to believe that the will of God is always somehow attached to what's easiest and most comfortable and makes the most sense to me. Yet, in my story, I most often find that the Spirit of God is most powerfully found when I step in light of how much God has convicted me and bothered me. We got a lot of young people in this church who are seeking the will of God, asking about careers and majors and marriages and dating decisions. It's always like, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? And innately, as they ask that question, a lot of them are thinking about, how does this make my life better, easier, and more like the outcomes that I want to see happen? Some of that's good to have a plan and a vision for where you want to go, but a lot of that makes the assumption that God will only ever lead you to a space that feels right. Actually, I found in my life, that the will of God is most heavy on your life when he completely wrecks you about something and bothers you and breaks you from within. So I tell people, hey, there's different ways to look for the will of God. You need to look to the advice of others, the scriptures, the leading of the Holy Spirit. But more than anything, if you wanna know what is God's will for my life, my question for you would be, how has God broken your heart for what breaks his? And when you align yourself with something that God cares about, now you're letting a, what's called a holy discontent be your guide instead of how do I find the most amount of contentment and comfort in this life? And I am not, look up here, I am not saying make your life unnecessarily miserable and that's the will of God. That is not what I'm saying. That's what I thought this meant as a college student. As a college student, it was kind of, trendy to, to want to go to the nations, specifically India and China. I think it was just because they were the furthest away and it was like, we got to go to India and China. And so I was passionate about Jesus and I was like, okay, I'm supposed to be a, a global missionary. Which one's it going to be? Well, I, I I'm, it's not India cause I can't stand curry. And, uh, but I was like, it should be China cause I love steamed rice. I I mean, I'm all about, I could eat that for the rest of my life. So I was like, it's China. I I kid you not. I studied Chinese for three years in college. I learned how to write characters. I've totally forgotten all this stuff, by the way. But it was uh, like, I mean, I was in. I was like, okay, if that's what we're doing. Like I'd read Radical and Crazy Love and I was like, yep, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to China. And then, and then I went, I like physically went to China and I found out very quickly, I'm not called to China. Any of you who know me well, you're like, the the, the smells alone were like, I'm not made to be here. And I remember the relief and the release I felt when I felt the Holy Spirit going, hey, I am calling you to the United States of America. I was like, praise you, Father, because <laughs> that is the only space I want to be. And, and I, you can use me here to send people there. And, and actually that has happened. And that's amazing. So I, I don't believe in intentionally making your life more uncomfortable just to go, well, it's God's will. He wants me to be miserable. no, 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 no. I'm talking about look for the thing that is dear to God's heart, that distresses you, that makes it hard for you to sleep at night, that makes you sick to your stomach, that we live in a world that would look like that. And then attach your burden to your purpose. Paul is moving in Athens because he's distressed by the lack of worship. He's not moving in Athens because he has an argument to prove. He's got a burden he's carrying. So I remember at 19 years old, being so burdened by Bible belt, culturally Christian churches. That was my burden that God gave me. I looked around and thought, it's so weird to me that if you're a radical follower of Jesus, you stand out in church. That's so strange. Like If we're reading the same book, why would that be the case? Why should you stand out for being weird? You know who should stand out? The people who are here just passing the time to read this book and make it look better and make friends and move on with their week. That should be weird. And so the whole burden that, that I just sat in and it made me sick. I would sit there at times on certain services and just be like, oh man, if ever we could be a part of a church that looked like, and our church is not the answer or somehow the solution to everything that, that was wrong. It was just a holy conviction that God put in my heart to go, hey, I'm going to bother you and make you not okay. I want to ask you the question, have you put your life in a position where the Holy Spirit has the permission to bother you about something? Because the church is the space where believers carry burdens together. And that's not just about carrying each other's problems and storms in life, that's about carrying each other's holy convictions. This might shock some of you, but I, as your pastor, am not called to carry every person's individual burden equally. God is going to uniquely wire some of you to care about certain things in the kingdom of God and attach your life to it. The beautiful thing that happens in church is that when your heart is breaking about sex slavery that needs to be eradicated, and your heart is breaking about what's happening in the Middle East, and your heart is breaking about the foster care system that may even exist in our city, and your heart is breaking for orphans, and another, like all of us are carrying these burdens that God cares about, but we're doing so collectively in a body where the presence of God is housed, but the presence of God is not housed to make us feel better and move on with our week. The presence of God is housed so that we can go out and create a fire for the glory of God in a lost, dark, and broken world. That's what church is. So it's God's nearness, our zeal. But you won't be zealous about something you don't care about, and you definitely won't be zealous about something you don't put your heart in close proximity to. And if your ambition for the will of God for your life is just, how do I make this the most comfortable and the most suitable for me and my family and the outcomes that I want, you will never put your life in a position for the Holy Spirit to distress you. So trade living for worldly comfort for a life of holy conviction. I want you to humbly pray, if you have not already, God, where are you breaking my heart? And how can I respond with a lifestyle of repentance? That's number one. Number two, and then we're going to take communion. Number two, trade living for worldly comfort for a life of holy conviction. Number two, trade ignorant idolatry for repentant humility. Trade ignorant idolatry for repentant humility. Oh, idolatry is so ignorant. And Paul is like, you guys, you guys got a God here. And the inscription says to an unknown God. Are you kidding me? You're ignorant of what you're giving your affection and your attention to. And he gives this beautiful sermon. I I would put all of Jesus' sermons ahead of this one. But this one is like the best non-son-of-God sermon that I've ever read. I'm just so impressed with the way Paul approached this whole message. But at the end of it, very few people respond. It just goes to show you that the value of a sermon is not revealed in how many people respond. But the depth of worship that results. And you got this one guy, Dionysus. Do you know that his name is named after the goddess of wine and fertility? Like the most vulgar sexually immoral practices that happened 2000 years ago happened in celebration of the name of the goddess that he's named after. He's a member of the Areopagus. He's elite and he's going, my whole life, is a lie, and I am worshiping created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. His eyes are open, but watch this. The only way to eradicate idolatry from your life is through humility. Idols don't go away simply because you're aware that they're there. Idols go away when you bow at another altar, and when you bow before the God who's worthy, you get humility. You can't work on humility, guys. You can't leave here and go, I'm gonna humble myself. I'm gonna be less. I'm gonna. No, humility is not a character trait that you can develop. Humility is the byproduct of being near Jesus. And so, if you wanna step out of the idols today, like this woman, Damaris, and this guy, Dionysus, it takes admitting out loud that you've been worshiping a lie. And that takes humility to go, okay, heart of worship. We sing that all the time. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing. I've made it. I've been worshiping my phone. I've been worshiping myself. I've been worshiping my status. I've been worshiping my bank account. I've been worshiping my story. You bring that before the Lord with humility and go, I'm trading in these ignorant idols for a moment at your feet in your presence. I'm not gonna lie, we have set the table for a time of communion for you right now and a time of worship that could be really powerful if you let the Holy Spirit move in your life during this time. You can go ahead and get your elements out right now. If you didn't get one, you can just raise your hand high right where you are. Someone from our team will bring it to you. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, you just want to drop that under your seat and sit this one out. But if you do want to say, yes, I believe, Jesus, you've come near today. It could be the day. Take communion. Absolutely. Communion is where we remember the body and the blood of Jesus and the way God did make it possible for us to draw near to him. we got communion stations around this room. At any room that you're in right now, I would just ask that you focus on where God might be burdening your heart. And let's, let's create the space for the presence of God to do the work. I don't feel called today. You can raise your hand again. They've made their way back up here if you didn't get one. Let's make the space for God to be the one to reveal through his presence what you are walking out doing with this sermon today. And not me having to say it explicitly. Husbands, as always, pray over your wives. Let's enjoy this time of communion. And then we'll sing.